Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with uh, Matt and John, and uh, the guys have been able to take a, a few minutes of their time to spend with me that we ha- we've not done as many podcasts. We've been doing this for seven years, six, seven years now. We've been running podcasts. We got over 550 podcasts that we put out. If anybody's bored at home, there's plenty of material here to follow up. But we've kind of gotten into a topic here that uh, I don't think any of us feel just uh, absolute experts, and that's the issue of embodiment. And uh, maybe, which sounds on the surface uh, fairly simple, but of course is one of the most complex of issues. But I think I'm gonna gonna turn over to the guys here uh, because they have an idea of where they might wanna take it. For the listeners, if you don't know, actually Matt and I were both students of Paul at different times. And Paul set me on my theological trajectory, even though I, I don't actually know if, you know, we've ended up in different places, not all together for sure, and have many similarities. But on this topic specifically, we've been having a good debate the last few weeks. And so I want to preface by saying, we're going to have this conversation about embodiment and transformation and the nature and supernature and that debate and how maybe those aren't the best categories and how certainly pure nature is an idiotic notion that uh, need never have been birthed into theological discourse. But I just want to say from the outset, Paul has never been a neo-Thomist and uh, a neo-scholastic Thomist. And even though I think where this conversation started between Paul and I was more within reference to uh, Karl Barth's work uh, in regards to von Balthasar and Eric Shavara. Even there, I think Paul has always been able to hold positions that are better than perhaps the most readily graspable representations of those ideas. In other words, all I mean is that, Paul, you've never been a clear exclusivist You've always entertained ideas of universalism. You have never just been uh, willing to easily consign people to eternal uh, torment and fiery hell, which is, you know, the characteristics of definitely the neo-scholastics, but also sometimes uh, these more dogmatic Protestants who read people like Karl Barth, though there's much more of a spectrum on that side. But where I, I wanted to start is just out of curiosity, where would you locate your own thought now in reference to ideas like the Analogia Entis? What sort of things can humans know about God from creation? Or maybe we should say understand about God from creation. How how would you position yourself actually in opposition to the nature-supernature debate too? If you could just say briefly. Okay, let me say though that you guys actually represent my American teaching career, because I think Matt was there at the beginning. When I came back, he saw me in total culture shock coming back from Japan, and uh, he was there to kind of rescue me. And John, I think you were my very last TA. You helped me carry my books out of the office. (laughs) 
so uh yeah you guys span my my at least the american american portion of my teaching yeah that first of all i don't know that if i had to say okay i'm going to tell you what i believe that i'd start with something like the analogia entis because there has been especially through karl barth his notion that the analogia entis is the antichrist and of course his misreading then of the the catholic tradition so that i probably wouldn't begin there but probably where i would begin and this is i said this in regard to to reading irenaeus and you rightly took umbrage at it and that is that i think irenaeus is simple and what you said well no he's not simple and of course he's not simple in the sense of easily graspable but i think as a young christian that this was my instinct about where i meet god and the fullness of god that we encounter in the world and specifically in nature the particular plot of nature i had in mind was the state plains in northern texas where i'd go out and ride out and meet god i i had a very simple view which unfortunately uh, i think was complicated and perverted by and i don't know to the degree that i ever gave that up so i think that in fact i've always understood that we meet god in christ and that god comes to us in his fullness in the person and work of christ and that is not something apart from or separate from. Now, that this part, I may have thought I need to repent of my young understanding of, oh, I can go out and, you know, meet Jesus in, in the prairie. But in fact, I think I've kind of returned to where I began. Oh, that's wonderful. That makes a lot of sense, actually, of me just reading your blog yesterday, because... Uh... I was trying to reconcile things together, things that you have said or where you were at. That's good. And I think what I would add to Irenaeus's view is I, it's not that it, well, there's several reasons why it's not simple. One, the text is hard itself to read, but that I don't think he closes off further questions. In other words, I, I don't actually think Irenaeus would have ever been a robust enough theological account of embodiment and transformation that further questions weren't going to be asked that couldn't be answered just by Irenaeus or the New Testament for that matter. I mean, I'm not one of those people that thinks you can't find all the answers to these questions just in the New Testament. And so I think that is some of the reasons why you have later uh, origin. You know, it's interesting, Clement of Alexandria is an alternative view of anthropology that's nearly uh, synchronous with Irenaeus's own life and then origin afterwards. And then, of course, the West, we usually think about Augustine. But you did make a point in that blog that I, I would like you to talk a little bit more about that I think is key to this, and that there really isn't a difference between creation and incarnation, I mean, creation and salvation, because of how Irenaeus understands the incarnation, which is to say that he, and this is true also of Gregory of Nyssa, later they parallel each other that adam is not the uh, first principle of what it means to either have the image or the likeness of god but rather the first principle or the source of the image and likeness of god is in fact christ and the way they may differ is how they conceive uh, but again there's a parallel here uh, it is christ as the spiritual human being 
uh, it is the resurrected Christ in a sense, or at least the, the Christ who is revealed in all of his glory. And for Irenaeus, anyway, glory is going to be connected as it is in the Gospel of John to martyrdom, uh, to Christ's own death and the showing forth of glory, the self-giving love uh, that is at the heart of the Trinity, the triune God. But I, I think you were right to connect those two things. And so I wondered, how would you... Uh, would you say anything more about that and how you think it does pose a sort of alternative to this other conversation that has to do with nature and supernature? Yeah, and the, this, of course, is an Eastern understanding that, you know, I would like to, to think that I was never happy with a kind of Augustinian view, first of all, of time and an Augustinian kind of separation here. And so I very much like this idea that in Christ, the, the second Adam, is the completion of the first Adam, but also the completion of creation. This is not a concept that I ever encountered in my education in Bible college or seminary. A very simple idea, but it's just absent. And of course, again, what I would say is this, what is we would call now an Eastern idea, but I think it's just the biblical picture. I think it's just there in the early church. It, very much there in, in Irenaeus, is just to see creation as a continuum that actually is only completed in the eschaton. And that does so many things. Uh, first of all, you know, the whole debate, I don't, you guys may not have been, well, John, you weren't, but Matt might remember the openness of God debate here. A, a kind of a silly departure in, in some ways. And the professor I had at Cincinnati I was going to write my thesis on time and on Augustinian time with the idea of coming to a, an orthodox understanding. And he had uh, taken up the, the notion that God exists along a timeline. I don't mean it as an insult, but that, yeah, it's sub-Christian. That answers a lot of questions that are all of these questions. You know, how does God answer prayer? How, what does it mean to be predestined? What you know, we've got all of these complications in the West. What I've spent a good deal of my learning and confusion about is just working out complications that we need never, never have had. And I think that in a, this understanding that uh, between the two atoms, the completion of creation in Christ, predestination is undone because Christ is the predestined one the notion of time. We understand that whole notion, you know, that God exists in eternity, but the cross and the incarnation are eternal facts about God. I remember I encountered that first in John Bear many years ago, and I really liked that. Now, of course, that could be heretical or taken in the wrong way. I was, that was great, because there's two other points, and you started making them at the end, that one we talked about, it's actually us, three of us, talking about it in origin, origin's point that when we talk about the temporality or the createdness or the finitude of creation and what it means creation ex nihilo, it's not really that God began. You can't say God began to create at this point because that already presupposes some sort of time. So it's like the universe is always already created, which will lead David Bentley Hart, who has sort of spurred this conversation on to say things like, and I've heard him do this in interviews, uh, I imagine he may say it in this new book, You Are Gods, but he will say things like, well, uh, the God who becomes human is always already human. 
And that's to say the same thing you just said. And of course, as long as you're not some sort of Hegelian or a materialist or and uh you know post-enlightenment rationalist or something that makes perfect sense but if you're any of those other things then you're probably going to misunderstand what he means uh but i I think that's right in a sense i almost think a a heretical view on this this was my development i encountered jürgen moltmann and of course jürgen moltmann is hegelian in other words i think what we lost in the emphasis on a kind of pre-incarnate you know, save going to heaven when you die. We lost the significance of the life of Christ. And so there is a turn then to the, the in Hegel and in Moltmann, Moltmann is talking about, I'm saying all this understanding Moltmann is inadequate, but nonetheless, I found him so refreshing as a kind of alternative to the attempt to get behind history or the de-emphasis on history and I think this discussion sets that up. It puts everything in place in a way that, for me, just kind of trying to find my way in the wilderness, it took me a long time to put put those elements together. Just uh, You mentioned your development, and I wanted to ask about that. And thank you, by the way, to echo John's uh, earlier comments that I, I certainly wouldn't be having this conversation with you guys. I wouldn't be equipped to be able to talk about these things if it weren't for you meeting you back in like 2007 and the way you've kind of taught me you know and, and provided me with such an education i just want to say thank you for that you, you taught me how to think really the, to, to read to think critically and, and all those things but i was thinking about what you said earlier at the beginning of your talk when you were one of my favorite blogs that you that you did was uh, when you were describing your time on the plains there in texas i thought that was a beautiful blog and so i'm thinking about your development so um you you kind of described about something happened you know that there was some sort of complication or some kind of uh detour you know that that maybe you, you took that kind of maybe even sort of led you away from that place that you found yourself on the plains you know and, and you just kind of found your way back uh, through a sort of christocentric what you described as a christocentric understanding that is very much incorporated with an idea of peace as being central to the gospel uh, and then you wrote you know, your book, The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation, which is available wherever books are sold uh, for our listeners. Yes. If they have them in stock, I don't know if they'll have them in stock because, you know, oh, they're, they're, they're flying off the presses. Yes. Get your copy uh, now. <laughs> you know, but but there. So, again, I'm trying to track your development from being a kid on the plane to sort of, you know, the you, you described kind of being uh, detoured you know, finding your way back through a strong Christology. And then you write this book, a brilliant book, that spends a lot of time talking about Romans 7, you know, and describing what it looks like, the life apart from Christ looks like, and what you describe as the subject of the lie. Um, very, very brilliant, interesting stuff there. And so I'm wondering how these these things kind of converge, right? Or how did you make that movement, you know, from kind of a, a maybe an innocence or a sort of simple sort of connection with God and then being kind of detoured, coming back uh, through a Christocentric understanding, finding your way and these insights into Romans 7 to really describe life apart from Christ. And then I know that that's already kind of a big question, but I've always wondered about the touch point then between what you described there in Romans 7 as this sort of, and I don't want to say too much, but it's almost like the subject that you described there is so kind of sort of taken in this delusion and deception of sin and death, what's the touch point with what John was describing with grace or, you know, the, the fact that your high Christology, where does that 
fit into your understanding of this whole discussion that we're having between the subject of the lie and sort of the Christian subject that you described then in, in Romans 8? If that's too big a question. I'm no, sorry. no, that's uh, Matt, you do actually, you, you named the thing that kind of holds it all together, and that is the Christocentrism. And that, again, is not something that you're going to typically get, at least I didn't get it in my education. Uh, so it was, I, it was in Japan, you know, I actually uh, majored in apologetics. My wife, her parents were missionaries, so we went over to Japan as missionaries. And I just assumed, well, the way you tell people about Jesus is through apologetics. And of course, already you're on the wrong foot because it is a kind of combative confrontation that the, the whole mode of it is presuming that these things are alien to you and your worldview is so mistaken. And I'm going to have to convince you of creation. And even for a fairly stupid individual like myself, I realize this is just not going anywhere in Japan. And of course, what, what becomes obvious is that people are hurting. People need Christ. You know, part of that is cu cultural, well, that in some way our, our place in the world, our cultures are oppressive. And that's fairly true. It's just obvious in Japan. Maybe it's more obvious to us in another culture how the culture itself can be oppressive. It occurred to me, I you know, that I've recounted this before: the idea of the, of shame, the idea of a corporate identity, and specifically in Japan, what is called Nihonjin Ron, the identity of being Japanese, which strangely enough was tied into Freudian psychoanalysis, and so I began to pursue that. And part of what I recognized there, first of all, was an accurate depiction of the way that Japanese think of themselves. Now, whether they think of themselves because of the literature or the literature is describing a way of thought, I think that the truth is somewhere between those two things. But nonetheless, what is described is this oppressive notion of identity that is death-dealing. I mean, quite literally against life, uh, an entry into life. And so the Freud stuff tied into that, when I, and, and, and I tied it into the Bible in a very simple fashion, because what is depicted in Genesis, and I think throughout Scripture, is this confrontation concerning what is life and death, and that we confuse those. We mix those up. The, the lie of the serpent in Genesis that you won't die, it describes a Japanese sensibility about death. There is a, an overt death denial, ancestor worship, the idea the dead in some way control life, but in a real sense that dying, uh, the specific word here is amayadu, a total dependence upon mother and Mother Earth uh, is this idea of a kind of obliterating or undoing or melding with getting rid of the self. That is, it's a kind of nihilistic worldview. And I realize that th this is not just theoretical. People hurt. You know, people are in pain, and they may be in pain and oppression because of their view of themselves and their view of the world. And so there is this kind of dark view of things. Now, I, I think we could turn this around and say a lot of dark things about this country, but 
because I recognized that there, this took me into recognizing more of a therapeutic or healing understanding of the atonement of Christ. And this then took me to Karl Barth, and well, actually it's already there in Moltmann, and ultimately into the notion of, you know, what is it that we're looking for? Well, it's peace, it's love, it's life, and those things go together. And so just to ask the rest of the question, so how, though, the, the, the subject that you described there in Romans 7, unless I'm misunderstanding, has been uh, deceived by sort of what you refer to using Zizek as a fundamental fantasy that they in some way are able to construct an identity apart from God, et cetera, right? And so in the context of what John was saying earlier, right, I'm trying to figure out how does that subject that you described there that's, that seems utterly deceived, that seems uh, in some way cut off from life, cut off from Christ, how does grace fit into the love that you were describing, the peace that's offered, all that stuff, the fact that Christ became man? What is the touch point between the subjectivity that you describe there in most of the book and the alternative sort of subjectivity that you offer using Romans 8? The key thing here may be to, to recognize, and anybody spends any time in Japan, you're going to go through two things. You also develop a deep appreciation for people and for just the love of people and, and, and the culture. In other words, I picked, painted that in a fairly negative light, but some of the most profound and finest people are, are Japanese. In no way can you imagine that people are cut off from the grace of God, uh, that people meet and understand whatever their context. And so when we talk about a deception or we talk about being deceived, it's never this total depravity or understanding that you get in an Augustinian understanding. It is always the idea the love of Christ is going to break through, no matter where a person or what their situation might be. But of course, the, our tendency is maybe the way that Irenaeus describes it is a matter uh, of maturity. I kind of like that. There is a sense in which we, we look to a kind of imminent frame rather than to God, our tendency may be to cast our eyes too low and to attach our desires to the immediate rather than to the transcendent. You never want to say about the religions, oh, they're all with the demons. Nor do you want to say about all the religions, oh, always lead to God. In other words, I just, until you actually get into the details and understand somebody like in Zen Buddhism, and I, I did a lot with the Kyoto School of Zen Buddhism. Oh, there, there's actually, actually, it was that that led me to Heidegger. I'm, I may be one of the few people that went to the West through the East, because I realized that what's happening in the Kyoto School is actually, it's a kind of imitation of what's being done in Heidegger. They're trying to put in Western terms the, an Eastern understanding. The question that I feel like Matt's trying to nail down, do you think actual individuals live as Roman seven subjects? And if they do, are they cut off from the good, from grace? Is their desire one that doesn't actually participate in their final end? I don't know if we ever really get a straightforward answer, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, understand who's the subject in Roman well, seven. This is highly debated, you know, but. Whoever it is, is it Adam? 
oh, is the first Adam not a participant in the second Adam? Is it Paul? Well, <laughs> you know, in other words, it doesn't matter who that I is. This is not an I that is a complete and total. Right. I mean, that's fine. And, and why, why you ask the question is because at times you've used that, though, Romans 7 subjectivity to talk about other, say, systems of thought, philosophy, or religions as constituted by a lie, fundamentally. And whereas if you say the opposite, and if you say actually that desire, as you were just saying, still participates in their final end, or it's transformative, then I don't think you should come to that same conclusion. In other words, it is, uh, I expect to learn about God in the form of Jesus Christ from Hindus. And rather, I don't think that that form of thought is constituted by a lie uh, in, in the same sense. Now, to simply just say, well, sin's constituted by a lie, sure, absolutely. Right. Uh, which is yeah. what I feel like you're pulling back and being more restrained. But I just wondered if you confirmed that sense or... Yeah, yeah, no, there's no... Uh, is Buddhism... But I, I very much enjoyed reading Nishida philosophy. There's there's benefit to be had. You understand he was a despicable individual <laughs> in the end, but I could still, well, I could say saying about a Heidegger. Uh, do you get more despicable? Well, we don't have to pick despicable individuals. So but I'm saying, I'm saying uh, in the worst of individuals, yeah, it's okay. not a writing off of their system. Actually, in Heidegger's understanding, I, that was a key formation for me what he's doing there is, is but do you so you used to say though they're just describing the truth of the lie do you think they're also describing the truth of the truth so the, the way that lacan puts this is the truth inheres in a lie okay. and and what he means by that is that well you come to a truth but ultimately the truth is gain is it only but comes together as christians matt and i are saying the truth coheres in the ultimate truth of god right right <laughs> and so that's what that's what we do i can take a heidegger and recognize oh there's truth here that that is christian truth in fact i think a lot of heidegger stuff is straight out of the bible that's no mystery why that's christian truth but what about Vedantic scriptures? No, it'd be no different. But the but you understand there is such a thing as taking the truth and making it cohere in a lie. And I think we need to recognize there is the possibility for evil. Why wouldn't you want to say that maybe all religions lead to God? I mean, we're talking God with a capital G there, you know, not one under concepts or forms or the experience of God or something like that. But then I guess I'm, I'm still interested in how this, this conversation does play well with the debate about nature and supernature, because it would seem like the person, the subject, as you identified it in Romans 7, even though this is in and of itself a damnable existence, that this subject has nothing but a natural end. You may want to rebuff that, but it would seem like that's sort of what's being said and that, okay, so there's grace everywhere, but that there are people who are actually not able to come to their supernatural end. I mean, maybe in one sense we would say, well, of course, it's always in the form of Christ or the form of Christ is the clearest, best understanding of what it means for God and uh, humanity to be united. Uh, that, that would be one way to take it. I guess you could, it's obviously eschatological. I was thinking something, I think Balthazar actually says that uh, it's the total Christ that is the prototype, meaning all of humanity in Christ is the prototype. 
I, I'm curious how you might link an appreciation to universal salvation, as we've talked about it before, with what you were saying about how there is, as Matt's saying, there is seems to still be this category uh, of people who are, or this category of subjectivity that is cut off from uh, that. And, and of course, part of this is the problem, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but that's the way that a missionary going to Japan, you know, this is my wife's experience her whole life, you know, a very small percentage of these people are Christian. That's not to say Christianity hasn't had a huge impact in Japan. So how, what do you do with that in a traditional understanding? In other words, you're not going to be satisfied with a typical evangelical understanding. Anybody that spends very much time in a place like that, you recognize that God is at work in all people and through ways and means that we may not know of, and we're just willing to, to accept that mystery. And that's just so true there, that you can't just consign people to a damnable state. For, for me, that this all became very pragmatic. In, in all this discussion, I think we can sometimes just float off into theory, but you understand people are hurting and people are sick. And I really believe that there is a resolution to the human problem, the human predicament, that true healing is to be had in Christ. And I think if we just keep coming back to that, I may not understand how that is worked out universally. You know, I trust that God is at work in all places, but I understand how he's at work in Christ. And my job, my task as a missionary, and then coming back here, was to explain, okay, this is how Christ addresses the human problem, the human predicament. I happen to just think that the human problem, literally, that is, the, the, what makes people sick, what makes them hurt themselves, what makes them suicidal, often, not always, that there is something to be said about the human disease and the understanding, the prognosis of that disease that we have in Christ and the resolution to the disease. But of course, already I've shifted. I'm not talking Western theology here anymore, at least what I was familiar with, because we're not talking about the saving of souls and going to heaven. We're talking about the cure of a disease and the, the, the great physician who can heal us. Yeah, that's good. I mean, actually, it just reminded me of what I was saying about you when we started, that uh, I feel like you have, you're such a good person that you seem to uh, always do better than even uh, the theological paradigm that you may have had access to at the time, uh, which is a good thing. John, I just want to add to that too. One of the things I really appreciate about Paul and that I've really learned and want to imitate is that, uh, you know, I think that I've known a lot of people who they get kind of like locked in to a particular way of thinking and they they become maybe even overly committed to certain things that they've already decided. It's like, okay, this is the way, you know, it, it, and I've, I've watched Paul, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, sort of evolve and, and we've evolved along with him, right? Because we've had this continual conversation, right? And I think that that's what you're talking about is that we're all desiring this sort of supernatural end, which is God himself, because we want to know truth. And you're right in that we want to understand this beautiful thing that we're trying to describe, this good, this goodness that we're that we're all trying to grasp together. And so I think that that's really important. And I, and I just want to say that I want to always 
have that sort of humility, I guess, is the way that I would describe Paul's way of thinking, because you're always willing to kind of say, well, maybe I could have said things a little bit differently, or, or maybe I could have done something, you know, a little bit differently. Um, and you're, you've been able to look back and say, you know what, I got that, I got that wrong. You know, there's just, you can't know everything, right? That's what we're all trying to do is trying to grow from glory to glory. And it's like, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback. You, you saved, I think you've said a number of times, like you saved John and I a lot of trouble, right? Like you, you saved us a lot of, of trouble by your hard work. Like what would you maybe, what advice would you give to the people who are listening about some of those detours that you took that weren't worth taking? So many of the questions that just plague us in the West, once we understand, and I, I would almost call this Calvinism, you know, the whole problem with predestination, the problem with penal substitution, all of the just abhorrent doctrines, that even if you're not Calvinist, you know, we're just sort of left with those things in the West, or at least I was. And so I just had questions. I just had all sorts of questions. I mean, I was receiving what people were teaching and say, okay, well, this maybe you know, this is the resolution. But of course, the thing that happens with a falsehood, it proves empty eventually, an, in, an inadequate understanding. It proves empty. And I, I think we need to be able to, to recognize that. I went through a generation that the crisis, the big theological discussion in this country, between fundamentalism and liberalism then was the authority of the Bible. It almost didn't matter where you came out on that. The whole discussion, I think, was misplaced. In other words, it was just a misunderstanding. How could I, or what would I recommend to people, the thing that was missing that you guys are getting in your education, and, and that is what we're doing now, and that's talking about the early church fathers, the, the patristics that they, in fact, dealt with so many of these issues. Irenaeus sidestepped them. What he's doing already displaces a lot of problems that I'm not saying Irenaeus is adequate or full or said this in the most fulsome way, but he's certainly going to depict something about what it means to be human that is going to be complicated and problematized by Augustinian doctrine. And I think specifically this this topic of, you know, Augustine's misreading of Romans five. I don't know how much how much you want to go back to, you know, and blame that misreading, but boy, that is key. And that's okay, what we're describing. The only is that I, have, I mean, this is actually Hart's going to get at the crux of this in this book, from what I can tell by interviews. And he wants to say it's problematic, and on the the level of the air of the doctrine of pure nature to make nothingness that nefarious. In other words, of course, it works out as evil in our relationships, and it is abominable what we do to each other. But it's not like all this coheres actually in a lie. It coheres in our constant uh, insidious rebellion against the truth. A lie is a falsity. There's actually nothing there. And I, I hear you say that sometimes. So I was just trying to see, I mean, I hear you say it the way I'm articulating it too. I just sometimes wonder. So that's why I think Matt was trying to drill down on that one point. You're very slippery on this. <laughs> I don't mean, well, I, it, it's I uh, so many different gentle ways to, you know, to ask it and uh, teach it open. Uh, maybe I'm darker than you guys. There is evil in the world. And I think that we can account for that in this. But of course, I think that goodness is much greater and that ultimately evil doesn't cohere. 
ultimately evil is just stupidity. And that's what you have to say. That's what I say about Heidegger. Here's a a brilliant imbecile. And I think that's the, the point is that, no, it really doesn't hold together, but we would act as if it did. Now, I just thought of a way of asking the question Matt was asking earlier that may push you into an answer. You used to hold that desire is always illicit. Desire just desires desire. And that was one way of thinking about Romans 7. But in fact, the way the patristics overcome this issue uh, or, or provide a parallel alternative to nature, pure nature, is to say desire always desires God. What do you have to say about that? I, I, like, the, I like the question. But to get myself off the hook, let me say it's partly a matter of semantics. And it's not my semantics. I think it's the semantics of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And that was what I meant when we talk, you know, when you talk about in 7, when he talks about desire. But that's not the word that he's going to use in talking, other than the point where he's talking about sin. It's absent in chapter 8. And the desire, desires, desire, that's a Lacanian phrase. That is that this thing gets hooked up. I don't know if you get the feeling of that there, but the idea is that to keep desire alive, that's all you got. Because in a Lacanian frame, which I think is descriptive of a sinful failure that Paul is describing, the object of desire is inconsequential. And of course, that's really the, the key here because the object is going to never satisfy. You know, you're never going to be able to to get enough. But you can't never get enough of God. That's actually Origen's point, is he uses that language, right, the right. insatiable desire for God. But right, yeah. right. And so I, I think a little bit of it is semantics. But of course, if you're talking about a larger picture, even in the Bible, there is this picture of desire of God. That is then the end point. Then you're talking about an ordered desire. And what Paul is describing in, you know, this covetousness, there is a different experiential reality in those two things, in a desire rightly directed and a desire wrongly directed. The one is self-consumptive, destructive, of both the self and the object. In other words, it is a, a destructive thing that Paul describes as deceive. And that's the way that I've pictured this. You know, when we talk about deception, uh, first order deception is simply this misplaced desire. You're consumed with desire for the wrong thing. And already it, it is a first order experience of deception. And that'll kill you. We are talking about a different quality of uh, experience in this thing. You know, it's not that we don't desire God, because obviously that we do, but I do think there is a different quality of desire. Once our desires are ordered properly, then the world kind of falls into place and the desires of the world. It's not a consumptive desire. Good point. Good explanation. So this is, there's an interesting thing in this, I guess, in connection with the nature-supernature debate and a bit of what Hart is saying. It seems like you actually just said two things. You said, one, there's a qualitative difference, and then you used the word disordered. And you you probably mean the same thing. I don't mean that you're equivocating, but those are two ways of describing two different things, actually, in this debate. And that is that what Hart wants to claim, what certainly I think is there in the patristics, is that desire itself, even when you desire something uh, finite, something that's wrong, disordered, 
the desire that is there is ultimately still directed Godwards. So do you accept that or do you think it really is a different quality of desire or I'm trying to use your words, but maybe that's a misrepresentation. I don't know. Of course, part of this, the, the Lacanian stuff enters in here and, and you understand that they're not just uh, Lacan and, and Zizek are not just down on desire. That's all they got. And so to keep jouissance, yes, that, well, jouissance, that's pure evil, even in their own picture. But nonetheless, it's out of that evil. In other words, they're beginning with an originary evil, which is, <laughs> you understand how dark that is. And so, I, yeah, I have a higher view than they do. I think that we, and maybe that's why I want to use a different word, because I think that uh, there is a jouissance. There is this thing. I think is there. Paul's describing it in, in connection to the law the the transgressive or the relationship to this order to this symbolic order that's a definitive of this quality of desire that in some way you know this is is the depiction of why paul's a killer as a pharisee i think that you can connect those two things that a pharisaical covetousness is deadly but so too is all human covetousness even righteous and that should go in quotes a legal righteous covetousness, desire for God. There is a joy, a fullness, a pleroma, uh, a peace that is simply absent in human experience of desire otherwise. Paul, what you're describing in your book is using Lacan and Zizek is a sort of insatiable, and so call it an infinite desire that you describe as any subjectivity that would attempt to fulfill that infinite desire with a finite good is that's the recipe for frustration because the nature of desire is infinite. And so it can only have an infinite object that's sort of adequate, you know, to, to sort of satisfy that desire, right? And so the essence of frustration would be to direct an infinite desire towards a finite good as a sort of final end. So I do think that that's there in your work, you know, and then you go into Romans 8 and describe how that sort of that disordered desire is dis is displaced, I think, in, in some ways. So the other aspect of your thinking that has both influenced Matt and I a great deal is your commitment to pacifism and as forging plowshares. Matt, I wondered if you wanted to comment about your own thoughts. Sometimes what happens in pacifism is you have people committing themselves to an unjust peace instead of uh, you could decide whether it would be just or unjust violence. Yeah, you know, that's always the objection is that someone says, well, what if I'm, you know, someone breaks into my house to, you know, hurt my wife or something like I, I do think that uh, that peace is, is central to the kingdom of God. But I've always been sympathetic, of course, right? It's like I, and, and maybe it's easier when you're single to hold strongly to, to saying, well, no, you have to come up with creative solutions and things like this. But, you know, if, you're, if your wife is, uh, or if your friend, you know, if we were out somewhere and someone was trying to hurt you guys, it's like, well, I think that it would be wrong to, you know, allow that to happen if I can, if I can stop it. You know, some of this stuff I'm working through too, right? You know, at what point does it become wrong to not stop someone from doing great evil? Some of these questions are too too difficult for me to to try to figure out. I think that what Paul was saying earlier that if I can if I can figure out ways to try to become more peaceful in my own life, if I can try to find ways to become more merciful in my own life, to, to become more merciful and loving, and maybe maybe that's a good place to to start. These are big questions that I think have should we try to stop what President Putin is doing, the good people of Ukraine, for instance. It's like 
whenever you were a kid out there on the plains, though, you know, you didn't have a lot of the the data that you have. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what, you know, was it, do you think that that was inadequate whenever you were uh, a, a child? And I mean, Jesus says that to such belong the kingdom of God. And that whenever you got back on your horse or whatever and rode back into town and started to read theology and learn theology, I mean, did it, it just stayed out there? I should have never wrote that. Out there, you know? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think pacifism, peace, I, I think that there is a cycle. I don't know if you guys cycled through this way. When I was a young Christian, I just thought that's what the Bible taught. You know, that's just there. But of course, to reinforce that, you almost need a group of people that have come to a similar conclusion. In Texas, there were no such people. It was all Christian nationalism and the fusion of church and state. Once again, I don't mean to load everything on Constantine, but we are very much a product of even worse. To call it Constantine is a bit of a misnomer, because I think Protestantism is more Constantinian than Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy ever was. On this issue, in Texas, I never heard of a nonviolent group. But as a child, that's just what I thought I was supposed to do. Once we veer off into a kind of Christian nationalism, and we imagine that our security and salvation or our identity in the church is in some way tied to the nation state, you're never going to be able to answer this question because the nation state by definition is violent. But I just say that about all, that's what human institutions are, that, that violence is always going to be posed to us as a necessity, that it is the only resolution. It is the only means. But remember once again, my place in Japan, the only country that has experienced a nuclear holocaust. They suffered the obliteration of cities in the worst way possible. And so peace is very much there in that cult. It's written into the Constitution, by the way. Not that the Japanese nation is peaceable, but there is very much that, that goal there. Step one is we have to understand that what the church is supposed to do for us is give us a culture in which nonviolence and peace is modeled for us. I didn't know of the Anabaptist or Mennonite tradition until I was well into adulthood. You can only be peaceable again corporately. It's not something you can do on your own. It's just too difficult. But of course, that's really what we're saying about the Christian life. None of this is stuff that we can do on our own. You know, that's what needs to be realized. The discipleship that we're called to, the narrow way, the peaceable, that that is such a difficult path. The ethics of Christ, of course, and that's part of what we've lost in evangelical understanding, but also I think in a Constantinian understanding that we suddenly were, we imagine that we have to negotiate all this. So when, even when talking about the present crisis with Russia and Ukraine. You know, we talk, what can we do? What we? What we are we talking about? You understand that it's the Russian Orthodox Church against the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, if you want to talk about it in religious terms. Which side is the Christian side? Which Christians would we want to kill there? What I can say is that it was very attractive to me, someone who had grown up in the streets. And when I was introduced to Christianity and the way that Paul was giving it to me was, is that, you know, love, love for enemies, peacemaking, all these things were central. And I thought, 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's that's got to be the way it is, because I know the way that it is in the world. It's very violent. It's just the way that the world is. And so this is an alternative sort of way of being human, of course, you know, and, and, and I think that the situation that you're describing there in your book is really just a violent sort of orientation, both in an interior and exterior sense. But I was thinking about our, con- our our conversation on the tradition and apocalypse books book and and kind of like the development of how we understand tradition. And it could be, you know, that regardless of the way that the church has handled this issue in the past 2000 years, you know, it could be time to change. You know, it could be time to evolve and to say, well, we didn't have nuclear bombs and back in the days of Constantine and, the, and whenever just war theory and things like these were developed. And now we're talking about the, uh, you know, the extinction of the human race, potentially, and to accord ourselves with the, the telos of all creation, the peaceable eschaton that we all hope for, and to conform ourselves not to the past and not to you know tradition in that sense but to conform ourselves to what we believe you know the kingdom how the kingdom is going to reveal itself well it could be that it's time to shift some of our theories and praxis and conformity with the hope that we have of of the peaceful kingdom to come you know for the salvation of mankind potentially you know with the types of weapons that we have today the trouble would be and imagining that there is such a thing as an unjust peace, which sometimes is what gets articulated. But actually, the people you brought up, the more I thought about MLK, for example, he didn't think there was anything just about the peace that he was committed to. Uh, in other words, he recognized that wasn't pacifism wasn't the solution. His nonviolent act was his way of trying to negotiate being Christian, but also change. In other words, the the peace that he was aiming for was the peace that should come when there are no longer dogs being set on you. I think this is actually a problem. In a lot of pacifism, you probably are committing yourself to an unjust peace. That's the way that it's talked about or imagined. And that's where this criticism comes in that, oh, it's, you know, this personal piety. Maybe it's even a particularly American way of thinking about this issue. But just to say you're, if you say instead you're committed to what Christ actually is, which would be a just peace, these two things together, or the eschaton, eschatological, the apocalypse, that's a just peace. Uh, To say that you're committed to that doesn't really commit you to anyone's strategy or to the fact that your strategy may fail. Uh, in other words, that's that's okay either way. That's pretty good. And then I just had more of a what I hope is a funny but tragic quip to Paul is that actually in America, Paul, Constantinianism is not the problem. It's the fact that there is no Christianity. <laughs> it's not a Constantinian Christianity. It's a dearth of Christianity. And of course, the love of Jesus can break through anywhere, even in this country. Uh, But that's what we're describing. We're describing a a Christianity steeped in violence. That should be oxymoronic, but unfortunately it's not. Whatever that is, you know, it's tragic. I was thinking about the passage in Matthew 25 where our Lord Jesus Christ talks about how, you know, anytime you visit the the sick, you know, the ill, the prisoner, uh, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, it was me, you know, that you were attending to. Okay. And so why can't it be on the other side that if if we're attending to Christ, whenever we're visiting the hungry and the thirsty and we're serving them, and he says it was me, it was me that you were giving a drink to. Well, then doesn't it also apply to whenever we're when we're nuking countries and when we're throwing people into solitary confinement and that whenever we're oppressing other people or turning away refugees, that that we're also turning away Christ, that we're also just murdering 
in some ways God, right? Because that what we're talking about is the image of God in people. This is what, you know, I don't want to get too far into you are gods because I've just started it. But it sounds like what Hart is saying is, is that the, the image of God, that God is, is in all of us, you know, that, that we live and move and have our being in God, that we are, that we're gods, that we're all becoming God. In some way, then I would think to, to do violence to, to others or to turn away, you know, the hungry or to turn away the thirsty or to uh, in any way destroy God, right? Like in some way you're either serving God, uh, loving God through your neighbor, or you're in some way destroying God, murdering God, imprisoning God, torturing God, starving God, right? So in other words, like this is a kind of a radical way of thinking, I think, but maybe that should play into kind of like the whole discussion on, on violence and things like that, because it's like, well, what are we desiring? Well, we're desiring peace, but yeah, but what, at what cost are we willing to answer for those crimes? You know, that couldn't it just as easily be Jesus saying it was me that you bombed. It was me that you, uh, you know, that you threw into solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. Uh, it was me that you tortured. In other words, what's at stake here isn't so much just, you, Paul, you were saying earlier that our identity is corporate and things like that. Well, yeah, but that's because God is everywhere present and filling all things. And that any identity short of that is by definition sort of failed way of being human. And so I would say that like almost that's that's a reason not to hurt anything. I mean, you know, this is Gandhi and people like this. This is why they don't eat meat. This is why they don't, you know, we can take that conversation maybe a little bit further, you know, as far as it can possibly go with with harming sort of creation. <laughs> oh, you described it beautifully that that our corporateness in Christ is by definition peaceable. You just simply can't bomb your way into the kingdom of God. You can't fight your way into the kingdom of God. And of course, that's the difference between Romans 7 and 8. What is it that the struggle is about? Is it a, a struggle about keeping something that he has? No, it's about to gain something that's lacking. And so what we would do is gain life through the law, through violence, through acquisition, through whatever. But of course, what we, we're given in Christ, we, we are given life, we're given peace. And that's a very different experience out of that fullness we can have peace. There is a capacity for peace, not innately, but because this peace is already established in Christ. And that's the basis upon which we can be peaceable. I mean, that's the horrifying thing, right? With something like the Holocaust or any of these other sort of genocidal, it's that like, well, what you're ultimately attempting to exterminate is God. And of course, we this is the story of the gospel, that this is what we would always do. I think the uh, picture of the bombing in Nagasaki. Who'd they drop that bomb on? Oh, they dropped it on one of the largest churches in East Asia. They're almost dead center. Who they killed? This Christian bomb crew. They were all Christian. The people they killed were immediately the people in that church, the priest in that church. Nagasaki is the heart of Christianity in Japan. So your depiction is just true to history that who you're killing in the end, the children of God. I, I think that's right. For rhetorical purpose, it's really strong. But you kill a Hindu, you're killing God. Is what right, that's, right. That's Balthazar's point in that quote when he talks about the whole Christ is, is really all of humanity. Yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I meant symbolically. That yes. It yes. couldn't have been a stronger symbolism. But, of course, it's always a strike on the heart of God. So, in other words, if we're talking about desire, it's like, well, it sounds like what you're describing in your book is definitely a death-dealing 
violent sort of uh, acqui- you know, acquisitive sort of desire that would stop at nothing to try to satiate that desire precisely because it's trying to, it's deluded and deceived into thinking that it can fulfill an infinite desire with a finite good. And we would do the same thing possibly in state violence, you know, uh, or just in our own lives. It's small things. It's like, well, if I, if I say something to my wife that hurts her, it's like, well, there too. It's like, isn't it our Lord Jesus Christ that could say, it was me that you were demeaning. It was me that you were, you know, so this is like a powerful Christology. This is a powerful anthropology that we're talking about, that, that we're trying to develop here. It sounds like John's got to go uh, make a hospital visit, so he's going to go visit Jesus now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. no, seriously, I mean, right? I mean, that's... Right. Yeah. Visit. Yeah. All right. It's good. good conversation, guys. I love I really guys. did. I appreciated this conversation a lot. Man, I didn't feel like we were plotting along. I actually thought we, may, we laid it out. Maybe you only think we're making progress when we're arguing. <laughs> Yeah, you're the one. <laughs> Violence. No, you no. Know, it's uh, I. You know, it's always fun. It's always fun getting together with you guys, and we have. Thank God, we have a great editor. You know. Yeah. I think this one will just go up as is. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to the next time we get to talk together. This is why this is my sustenance is to do. Oh, good. Well, we love you, and we love these conversations. Same here, guys. All right. Talk to you later. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.